Welcome to episode two of The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish, a show dedicated to sharing the stories of our nation's greatest battles in which Hillsdalians fought. Continuing from where we left off last episode, today we examine the fighting for what became known as Hell's Half Acre. For behind-the-scenes content, helpful visual aids such as maps and pictures of the battlefields, and much more, check out our Instagram page at lastfullmeasure101.7fm. On the night of May 7th, the Army of the Potomac quietly packed up their gear and began marching south along the Brock Road. Lee and the Confederates were not idle either. The moment Confederate scouts detected the Union movement southeast, the Army of Northern Virginia hurriedly packed up their gear and began marching to intercept Grant before he could reach Spotsylvania. That night, the two armies deployed their cavalry to the front, each trying to clear a path for the infantry to follow as well as to slow down their enemy's movements. All through the night, the two cavalry corps, commanded by Union General Philip Sheridan and Confederate General Jeb Stuart, clashed along the roads. One small action along the Brock Road included elements of the 5th Michigan Cavalry, one of whom was Hillsdalian Daniel F. Miller. The 5th, along with the rest of General George Custer's 1st Brigade, managed, fighting in the dark, to clear the way for the 2nd and 5th Corps to advance towards Spotsylvania. As the Union troops approached Spotsylvania from the northwest, the 5th Corps, under General Governor K. Warren, ran into dismounted Confederate cavalry two miles from the town. The cavalry had arrived earlier that morning and had constructed earthworks atop Laurel Hill, which dominated the western approaches to town. Lee had won the race, even without a head start. Warren's men attacked Laurel Hill, but the cavalry held. Soon, the Confederate infantry from the 1st Corps under General Anderson, who had replaced Longstreet after Longstreet's wounding at the Wilderness, arrived and reinforced the Confederate position. The battle for Laurel Hill raged all day as more and more Union and Confederate troops poured in, but the Confederates would not budge, and that night the two sides began digging in. Lee was once again on the defensive. He deployed his army in a semicircle around the town of Spotsylvania. Anchoring his left flank at Laurel Hill, the line extended northeast for one and a half miles before doubling back southeast, stretching two miles, ending just southeast of Spotsylvania Courthouse. The defensive line blocked both the Brock and Fredericksburg roads, which when they came together at Spotsylvania became the main road to Richmond. With his army dug in, well-armed, and determined to hold at whatever cost, Lee's position was a good one. However, there was one major oversight. The area where the line turned from northeast to southeast was dangerously exposed. It protruded out from the main line by half a mile and was flanked on three sides by the Union Army, forming what became known as the Mule Shoe Salient for its peculiar shape. In the following days, Grant launched repeated attacks against Laurel Hill and other positions on the Confederate left flank. None met with success. However, on the evening of May 10th, a bold attack by 12 hand-picked regiments of the 6th Corps, led by Colonel Emery Upton, managed to break through at a weak spot in the Confederate line in the Muleshoe. However, without reinforcements and under pressure from a large Confederate counterattack, Upton was forced to give up his position and retreat back to the original line. Though the attack was ultimately a failure, it gave Grant some important insights. The first was that a surprise frontal attack by infantry could achieve a breakthrough. The second was that the mule shoe was a major weak point. Grant then had an idea. If 5,000 men could break through the Confederate line, what could 20,000 men do? He decided to redeploy Hancock's 2nd Corps to the area in front of the mule shoe and made preparations for an assault that would begin on May 12th. Grant didn't know it yet, but one of the bloodiest engagements of the Civil War was about to begin. 
The Confederates knew something was amiss as early as May 11th. The section of line around the Muleshoe was oddly quiet, yet they could tell that massive formations of Union troops were deploying on the other side of the field in front of them. The Confederate commander in the area, General Edward Johnson, became very concerned. He requested reinforcements from Lee, but Lee, however, was unconvinced. Lee had received reports that Grant's army was preparing to withdraw to Fredericksburg, and Union troop movements seemed to match what his intelligence suggested. Lee not only refused to reinforce Johnson's sector, but also ordered 22 cannons to leave his sector. Johnson only found out about the evacuation of his artillery late at night on the 11th, and though he managed to convince Lee to return the guns, it would take time to bring them back as it had begun to rain and the roads had turned to mud. In time, moving the artillery would prove to be one of Lee's greatest blunders. That night, May 11th, a confident Grant sent a telegram to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. The result to this time is much in our favor. Our losses have been heavy as well as those of the enemy. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Early the next morning, it was time for the attack to begin. After a slight delay due to fog from the night's rain, at 4.35 a.m., with darkness concealing the advance of his troops, Hancock ordered the advance of his corps. They advanced silently through the knee-high grass until they reached the Confederate line. Shouting, Huzzah! They jumped into the trench. Except, it wasn't a trench. It was a small ditch. Besides a few scouts, no Confederate troops were present. The Union troops quickly realized their mistake and sprinted over a hundred yards in the dark towards the real Confederate line. With surprise lost, time was of the essence. The Confederates, awoken by the shouts in front of them, as well as scattered gunshots from their scouts, grabbed their rifles and ran to their muddy trenches. The 22 cannons that Lee had removed were just arriving and began to unlimber. However, caught off guard, outnumbered, and unprepared, the Confederates were only able to let loose one volley before being overrun by Hancock's Corps. The 145th Pennsylvania and the 26th Michigan, the latter including Hillsdalian Eno Stedman, were the first two regiments over the lines. In the early morning, just as our line reached the works, Captain Lincoln of the 64th New York and another officer, whose face I did not see, sprang upon the works cheering their men on when a shot struck the officer, whose face was turned from me, killing him instantly. Jackson, a boy from my own company and regiment, not over 17 years of age, mounting the works at the same time and seeing the shot fired, turned his gun, it being unloaded, bayonet downward, and threw it spear fashion with, Take that, you rebel! striking the man who had fired the shot just above the heart. The force with which he threw it drove the bayonet entirely through his chest, burying at least four inches of the muzzle of the gun in the breast of the Confederate, who uttered the most unearthly yell I have ever heard from human lips as he fell over backward with the gun sticking in him. Lieutenant John D. Black, 145th Pennsylvania Infantry. As Hancock's troops swept over the Confederate trenches, Johnson's division ceased to be an effective fighting force. Over half the division was captured, including General Johnson himself, as well as the 22 cannons which had just begun to arrive, while the rest of the men ran into the woods behind them and towards Spotsylvania, many of them dropping their rifles. The Union troops began securing their position and evacuating their prisoners. They tried to move the 22 cannons, but the Confederates had shot the horses bringing them up, preventing the Union troops from moving them. Lee, despite his earlier blunder, soon realized the desperateness of the situation. If Union troops managed to exploit the breakthrough, his army would be cut in half. If this were to happen, his whole army would be in danger of destruction. Lee decided to build a new defensive line 
using the remnants of Johnson's shattered division, as Hancock's attack had already proved that the mule shoe was untenable. However, in order to build the new line, Lee needed time. Lee decided to order every available unit into the mule shoe to slow down Hancock's men. The first regiments sent into the salient were those on the flanks, which had held their own against the initial Union attack, the 45th North Carolina on the left and James Lane's North Carolina Brigade on the right. The two units turned to face the gap in the line and poured volley after volley of accurate musket fire into the woods in the direction of the Union troops. The Union troops became disorganized and were slow to take advantage of their superior numbers and position. This gave Lee time to send in another unit to help, John B. Gordon's division. Gordon, who had distinguished himself days earlier as a brigade commander at the Wilderness, advanced his division into the salient, ready to save Lee's army from destruction a second time. Lee attempted to lead Gordon's men into battle personally, but for the second time that week, he was met by shouts of, Lee to the rear! His life was too valuable. Gordon's men would carry on without him. Rather than attack the Union position head-on, Gordon's division split into two groups. One group joined up with the 45th North Carolina and would advance up the earthworks on the left, while the other would join with Lane's brigade and advance up the earthworks on the right, converging on the Union position in the center. Gordon's men advanced along the old Confederate line and, under heavy fire, inched their way toward the breakthrough. By 9.30, only 150 yards of the original half-mile-wide breakthrough, the area encompassing the apex of the old Confederate line, were in Union hands. However, as Gordon's men tried to retake this last 150-yard section, the Union troops fought tooth and nail to hold their gains. What would follow would be the bloodiest and longest sustained combat of the American Civil War. Grant and Lee, seeing the precarious situation, funneled more and more troops into the salient. Union troops took cover on the outside face of the Confederate trenches, while the Confederates took cover in the woods behind them and in the trenches on either side. So many guns were going off at once that the usual spattering of gunfire had become a constant drone like a drum roll, similar to what soldiers in World War I called drumfire. Union and Confederate artillery fired blindly into the salient, often hitting their own troops by mistake. Hancock deployed more and more artillery, even employing mortars to lob rounds over his men to hit the Confederates in the woods on the other side. As the rounds struck the hillside and trenches around the angle, spouts of mud, blood, rifles, splinters, and limbs shot skyward. After only a few hours of combat, the area around the angle became so covered with bodies that it became impossible to see the ground beneath them. Union troops, taking cover on the outside face of the trenches, and Confederates, having advanced, now taking cover on the inside face, exchanged fierce fire over the tops of the works. The fire was so intense that a 22-inch oak tree was cut down by the whizzing bullets. Near this tree were two field pieces, horses and men all dead. Across one of the guns hung the body of an artilleryman. Gradually this body was so cut to pieces by the flying bullets that it slid from the gun apparently severed, the legs from the trunk. Hand-to-hand -hand conflicts raged back and forth over the breastworks and places where the lines came together. The men not only fired into each other's faces, but fought with bayonets and clubbed muskets, in some cases dragging their antagonists over the works to be made prisoners if they escaped death by shot or bayonet thrust. Colonel Edwin C. Mason, 7th Maine Infantry. Inside the trenches, as the bloody fighting continued, the bodies began piling up rapidly. Wounded soldiers, as more and more men were killed, often became trapped under two or even three of their dead comrades. As it continued to rain, water and blood dripped down into the trenches, filling some with up to a foot of water, blood, and mud. Many wounded soldiers drowned in this awful concoction. 
As the Union troops desperately tried to hold on, Lieutenant Robert S. Robertson described the scene. The horseshoe was a boiling, bubbling, and hissing cauldron of death. Lee's army was hurled against us as we lay hugging the slope of the earthwork, loading and firing at will in five successive waves in its effort to retake this, the key to his position. But our fire was too hot, and the waves of grey were successfully beaten back with terrible loss. Once a few hundred, with a stand of colors in the furious charge, reached the inside of the works. To advance was impossible, to retreat was death, for in the great struggle that raged there, there were few merely wounded. Clubbed muskets and bayonet thrusts were the mode of fighting for those who had used up their cartridges, and frenzy seemed to possess the yelling, demonic hordes on either side, as soft-voiced, tender-hearted men in camp sought like wild beasts to destroy their fellow men. Another soldier wrote, All around that salient was a seething, bubbling, roaring hell of hate and murder. In that baleful glare, men didn't look like men. The dead lay in heaps, and others took protection behind them. The earth was literally drenched in blood. Private R.E. McBride. Lieutenant John D. Black described in his account the carnage that came from the heavy fire. A schoolmate and intimate friend of Major Church, both belonging to the 26th Michigan, fell on top of the works that morning. We found the remains where they fell. There had been no time to remove them, and they had lain on top of the works during the entire engagement, and... Had it not been for some of the comrades who had seen him fall and identified the place, we would never have recognized it as having been a soldier. There was no semblance of humanity about the mass that was lying before us. The only thing I could liken it to was a sponge. I presume 5,000 bullets had passed through it. Fighting like that which has been described continued for 23 hours. From 4 a.m. on the 12th, to 3 a.m. on the 13th, Union troops held their own against repeated Confederate attacks, and Confederate troops successfully halted the Union advance and prevented a major breakthrough. It was only at 3 a.m. on the 13th that the new Confederate line was completed, and, finally, the Confederate troops holding the angle were allowed to retreat to this new line. As the fighting died down, Union troops slowly pursued the retreating Confederates, expecting that the breakthrough that they had sought after was achieved. Instead of seeing the expected gap in the Confederate lines, however, they saw, in the dim early morning light, a new Confederate line into which the remnants of Gordon's division were moving. The 23-hour fight had been for naught, and the Confederates were now in an even stronger position. As the sun rose in the morning of the 13th, Union troops moving up to inspect the angle were met with a grisly scene of death and carnage. I never expect to be fully believed when I tell what I saw of the horrors of Spotsylvania, because I should be loath to believe it myself were the case reversed. Early next morning, we went to visit the scene of the fighting. The breastworks were of heavy logs and they had traverses, that is, other short breastworks perpendicular to them to protect from a flanking fire. The rebels were mostly between these traverses, and they lay two, three, and sometimes four tiers deep. The lowest tiers nearly covered by blood and water. The wounded were often writhing under two or three of the dead. Nor was the scene where lay the boys in blue less cruel. They were mostly in the open. Many nothing but a lump of meat or clot of gore where countless bullets from both armies had torn them. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas W. Hyde, Provost Marshal General, 6th Corps. Piles of dead is often used as a figure of speech. 
but in the works abandoned by the rebels, piles of dead literally and without exaggeration were lying in the compartments, two, three, and four deep, tangled up with each other, bodies and limbs intertwined, actual heaps of dead, their black and bloated faces upturned to the sky in all manner of positions, and decomposition already polluting the atmosphere with a horrible stench. It was such a picture of war, horrid war, as few people, even those who make a business of war, are permitted to witness. It would take the pen of Victor Hugo to faithfully describe such a scene of death and carnage, such a hideous and appalling holocaust of human life. Lieutenant Harvey B. Wells, 84th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Fighting on the new line lasted for another week before, once again, Grant, defying his earlier intention to fight it out on that line all summer, decided to disengage. He left the field on the 21st and began yet another wide-flanking move around the Confederate Army. The horrors witnessed in the wilderness and at Spotsylvania would not soon be forgotten, and soldiers would be haunted by the nightmares of those grisly weeks for the rest of their lives. However, when all was said and done, and soldiers began returning to the scenes of carnage and glory from years prior to erect monuments to their fallen comrades, few ever returned to the land southwest of Fredericksburg. Few monuments mark the ground where the many thousands of young men fell. Only a handful of monuments lie in Saunders Field. A small memorial marks the spot where General Longstreet was wounded on the second day of the Battle of the Wilderness. For the Texans who saved the day for Lee at the Wilderness, there is no monument save a small sign placed there by the National Park Service. At the Spotsylvania battlefield, there are even fewer. Only three monuments are in the vicinity of the Bloody Angle, and none were placed by the veterans. Rather, state governments put them there long after the last living memory had passed. While many were proud to have served at Gettysburg or Antietam, no one wanted to be reminded of the horrors of the wilderness in Spotsylvania. Only a plaque from the National Park Service marks the site of the bloody angle itself. The veterans and Park Service alike have decided to let the ground, rather than stone sentinels, tell the stories of the battle. This past summer I had an opportunity to visit the battlefields of the wilderness in Spotsylvania. It's one thing to hear about or read about a battle, and another entirely to walk the ground. The woods of the wilderness even over a hundred years later, still have an eeriness about them. Trenches, craters, and other scars of battle irrevocably mark the ground as hallowed. But even when compared to the eeriness of those haunting woods, visiting Spotsylvania was even more disturbing and enlightening. Walking the grounds around the bloody angle is an experience unlike any other. Never before or since have I felt such an aura of death and carnage, of dashed hopes and of glorious deeds, of clinging on for dear life amidst chaos and confusion, such that you feel as if those thousands of horrid, dead faces are staring at you from beyond the boundary of 150 years past. Even if those few monuments that were erected were to be removed, and all other reminders of the battle withdrawn, the ground alone, soaked in the blood of thousands of Union and Confederate soldiers, would convey that same feeling. After leaving Spotsylvania, the two armies marched south to the banks of the North Anna River and engaged in sporadic combat before Grant decided to march even further southeast. 
In early June, Grant and Lee faced off again at a crossroads a few miles east of Richmond named Cold Harbor. Many of the troops in the two armies already knew the ground, however, and the new ones found the evidence of why, as they found sun-bleached bones, abandoned rifles, and abandoned equipment. Two years before, and just a few hundred yards from the lines of trenches dug during the Battle of Cold Harbor, the Battle of Gaines Mill was fought. Though we must leave the Overland campaign for this season, join us next episode as we travel yet further back in time to the summer of 1862 to discuss the Peninsular Campaign and just how close the Union Army came to ending the war right then and there. That was the last full measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page for behind-the-scenes content, helpful visual aids such as maps and pictures of the battlefields, and much more at Last Full Measure 101.7 FM. I would like to thank everyone who helped with the making of these episodes. Isaac Erickson helped me with the editing, especially in episode 1. Liam Moffat helped with voicing a couple of the soldiers, as well as with editing the scripts. Jonah Wisniewski, Ryan Bagley, Zach Miles, Will McIntosh, and many more, in fact, too many to mention, helped bring Civil War veterans to life. If you are a Hillsdale student and are interested in lending your voice to the show, contact me via our Instagram page or by email at lastfullmeasureshow at gmail.com. Lastly, I am indebted to the staff of the archives here at Hillsdale College for giving me access not only to the database of all Hillsdale students who served in the Civil War, but also to many of pictures, letters, and other artifacts from them that are kept here at Hillsdale, which allowed me to uncover the stories of the many Hillsdale students and alumni who served in the wilderness and at Spotsylvania. <laughs>